Hello, I'm Ray Reich, founder and CEO of RevOps Squared, and your host of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. We talk to a wide variety of B2B, SaaS, and cloud thought leaders, executives, investors, and people just like you to discuss the metrics and benchmarks they use to make metrics-informed decisions. Now on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics at Measure Up podcast. Today, we're joined by Lotney Conant, the Chief Marketing Officer at Sixth Sense and author of one of my favorite new books that I've read recently, No Forms, No Spam, No Cold Calls. Today, we'll be covering three main areas with Lotney. First, the buying journey sweet spot. Second, metrics that matter to increase pipeline performance and sales velocity in today's demand generation and demand capture model. And third, defining and mastering the dark funnel. Lotney, thank you so much for being a guest and please provide a brief overview of your journey to becoming a guest on the Metrics and Major Up podcast. Sure, thanks for having me, Ray. So first of all, my title is actually Chief Market Officer and that's very deliberate and that's part of my journey was I really wanted to be able to be the voice at the table that represented the market. And I think a lot of times... CMOs show up and talk a lot about all the activities that they've done versus showing up really owning the domain of market. And so it took me a while to feel like I lived up to those shoes. But after uh, our Series C round, I felt like, you know, in shaping that round and shaping the message around it and, you know, understanding the TAM that I was ready. So just a point of clarification. The rest of my journey here has been pretty interesting. I have a very non-traditional marketing background. I started in accounting and then I was in consulting and then I was in sales and I really thought I wanted to be a sales leader. But, you know, sometimes you get thrown a curveball and I I always believe in saying yes. So, I said yes and found myself running marketing at at Aperio and really loved it and We had a great outcome and then wanted to get into technology and found Sixth Sense. So that's kind of how I got here, an accidental marketer. We're going to double click into the accounting side of marketing, the metrics in a few minutes. But you talked about your journey because I asked you to. But let's talk about another journey that gets thrown a lot around a lot in B2B technology, customer acquisition and expansion today. That's the buying journey. And it was one of the first graphics I saw in your new book, No Forms, No Spam, No Cold Calls. So can you, let's start at the beginning. Can you tell me exactly how you define the buying journey and the primary phases across that buying journey? Sure. So when when we're talking about the buying journey in Six Sense land and in the land of the book, we're actually talking about pre-opportunity journey. So I think that's important to note. And why it's so fascinating is that's the area of the journey that most of the time you know the least about, right? So because this is before they maybe even came to your website. And so much of the buying journey is anonymous. So there's three things that are true about the buying journey today. One, majority is anonymous. 
Two, if you are a B2B company and you have a normal B2B motion, then typically there are going to be a lot of people involved in that journey. So there's going to be a lot of anonymous activity across lots of different people and there's a resistance. So it's really hard to get buyers to engage. There's so much noise out there. They've been burned. And so they're resistant to kind of our our, our tricks, right? To get them to get them to reveal themselves. And so that's why when we talk about the buying journey and this pre-pipeline and what, you know, in the third segment, we'll talk about the dark funnel. It's so important to understand that activity because too often we're either missing opportunities or we're getting into opportunities late because we don't understand that journey. And so the way we characterize the journey is phase one is target. An account in target is a great account for you. You want to sell to them. You think they're amazing. They're in your ICP, but they are under a rock. They are doing no research at all. And so that's kind of the toughest buying stage. Then they move to awareness. And awareness is interesting. You know an account is an awareness because they're sort of trying to figure out if they have a problem. So they're researching things that would show they have a problem and or they could be buying other things that show they have a problem. They could be hiring that show they have a problem in that area. But they're sort of like they're waking up, right? An account moves to consideration same thing, but they're probably starting to research more specific solutions that would relate to yours. So maybe they're researching competitive keywords, maybe they're researching like solution types. And then they move to purchase. I mean, then they move to decision. And in the decision phase, they probably have come to your website, but they haven't filled out a form. So they, they might know about you. They might just be doing a ton of research and, and not have, have come to your website yet, which is a problem. We want to get them to your website. And then when they move to purchase this in our world, purchase means they're about to open an opportunity. And so they're, they're probably about to fill out a form. They're probably filling out a form with you and all your competitors. And that sounds good, right? You're thinking, yay. But the issue with purchase is what I said, that they're probably filling out forms with lots of people and you're late. And so to me, we want to try to be engaged as early as possible in opportunities. So, you know, we want to be engaged in the awareness slash consideration phases, even if that just means they're consuming our content, they're learning our point of view, they're watching our videos, they're reading our book that's okay. Maybe they haven't actually filled out a form, but we want to make sure that we're, we're the knowledge and information that they're consuming. And then when they start to move into decision, that is the ideal time to actually outreach because you want to be the first point of engagement in a competitive landscape. This is assuming you operate in a competitive landscape where a customer or a future customer engages. That allows you to kind of shape the cycle. So that's where you have kind of that sweet spot identified is kind of the second half of consideration, first half of decision in the pre-opportunity funnel. Let me throw another acronym out at you that I hadn't heard of before, but you highlight it in the book. For me, everyone's talking about you really need to understand your ideal customer profile. And that's really how you target. 
in the traditional outbound world. But then you introduce the IICP, which to me tells me you're trying to be aware of people who are just in the beginning of the awareness stage. At least that's my assumption. So can you share what IICP is and how you use that? Yeah. So first of all, people love to talk about their TAM. And when you go to get funding, it's great, right? You want to present a huge TAM. And investors love to talk about TAM, SAM, SOM, love that all day. It's not real practical when it comes to sales and marketing alignment. Sales and marketing alignment is all about your ideal customer profile and then a subset of that, which is your in-market ideal customer profile. And I think that a couple mistakes happen here. Even just with the ideal customer profile, a lot of times people will build a static list and they create an ideal customer profile based on kind of generic things, company size, industry, like that's table stakes. And so I always encourage people to know, think about situational things that make this an ideal customer for you. You know, are they growing? Are they laying off? Are they doing a lot of M&A? Are they, did they just get funding? So, so you want to also layer on like situational things to really help refine your ideal customer profile. I also love technographic data. You know, typically if, if a customer is buying, if someone's buying a marketing automation platform, they're eventually going to want a sixth sense, right? If someone already has bought an outreach or a sales loft, they have to have sixth sense, right? So thinking in those type of terms, I think is also really helpful as you start to think about your ideal customer profile. And what you want is an ideal customer profile that's always on. When we do these static lists, we assume a company's not gonna grow, it's not gonna shrink, it's not gonna move headquarters. And companies are living, breathing organisms, right? And so you wanna make sure that you have a way to always be going out and finding ideal customers for you. So that's part one. And then part two is layering on the in-market aspect of it. Because when it comes to sales, the only resource that a frontline seller has is their time. And so we want to make sure that we give them awesome territories. And so what we really want to do when we think about account assignment and alignment with, with sales is we want to get them accounts that are, that are not under a rock, right? And, and so we want to be making sure that we're feeding them customers that are ready to buy. And that's kind of the marketing and sales alignment. And, and depending on the size of your ICP, if you have a small TAM and a small ICP, then you're going to probably have to work target accounts, right? And that's okay. But if you have a large TAM and a larger ICP and you marry that up against your sales team, you should be really cycling in the ones that are actually in market. And it's marketing's job to then look at those early stage stages of that journey and get them warmed up and ready for sales. Well, I could take this so many different ways, but let me kind of go to some research we did with Tech Target and also with Lean Data. And it was interesting. It said that 44% of B2B tech companies had some level or use of intent data but only 18% of companies were using intent data to help build a prioritized list for the SDR or sales team to reach out to. Why do you think it's so low? Since intent data is so available, why are we still using traditional models 
of that prioritized list that SERs are using to call to? Because data isn't a workflow. And what you have to be able to do is you have to marry data into a workflow, especially with a sales team. So they need to be able to go in every day, every day and have the same workflow. I go in, here are my prioritized accounts. I click on the account. I can see the research. I can see the buying map. I know there's an SLA. Like, oh, I preach about this all the time. I see a lot of people make this mistake of training the sales team. Well, anybody who sits in a training never thinks it's for them. They always think the training is for the guy or gal next to them, right? So we do all this training. No one thinks it's for them. They all think they're doing just fine. And then we have no carrot and no stick, right? And so what I mean about enabling a workflow is A, there's defined things that need to happen as part of that workflow. And you have a clear way to inspect, to make sure that the defined steps that you laid out are being met. So here's the ideal world. SDR team comes in, they have their prioritized list. It's dynamically refreshed for them. They click on the account. Everything they know need to know about that account is there. Everything from like crunch-based data to intent data to pre-intent data, like technographics, psychographics. The buying team map is there. It's not just one person, right? It's multiple people and all the contact data is there and even a recommendation for them of how to outreach is there. And then from that console, they'll, they're able to boom, 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 boom and do their thing. Here's the kicker though. Part of that workflow needs to be an SLA. So my team, they come in and they have 24 hours to work a newly in-market account. If they don't, it gets flagged to me and I get an email every Friday of all of the unworked six QAs. Most people don't wanna be on that list. So that's part one. Part two is what does it mean to work an account? Right? It doesn't mean you send one email. SalesLoft has done a lot of great research on this where they've like dissected a successful cadence. And it's like anywhere from 16 to 22 touches. So you got to say, you know, we expect 22 touches per persona. And we expect to at least have, you know, a LinkedIn. We expect to have a call. We expect to have all these different, you know, ways that you're engaging. And that can be inspected. So we take by VDR, we take every six QA that comes in, the total number of activities, and that allows us to see people not doing enough or people doing way too much. If they're doing way too much, then that means that it doesn't have the level of personalization that we require, which is really, really important. We're all about the four factors of relevance. So you have to be relevant at the account level for account fit. Like, why is this a good fit for us? Have we sold to other customers like this or that situational thing? Persona fit, how are we going to help this persona do their job? That needs to be part of the, the messaging behavior. If we know the keywords you're researching, we know the content you're consuming, why wouldn't we bring that to life and be as relevant as we can? And then the timing. So depending on where they are in that journey, you know, we will adjust that kind of that message accordingly. So those are our four factors of relevance. So we spot check our outbound to make, make sure that it's following the four factors of relevance. 
And then the last step is multi-persona. So our SLA is when an account six QAs, which is basically, think of it as like a high intent lead, right? When an account six QAs, they have to reach out to at least three personas, two marketing, one sales. So we're very clear and we can inspect each one of those things to make sure that they, and the workflow enables it, but also the reporting is what gives me the confidence to be able to sleep at night that I know our frontline teams are following the process and doing things the right way. Well, so much data there to unpack. And you had a couple acronyms I'm going to ask you to define a little bit more for our listening audience, um, Lotney. But one of the things we also found was that 30% of the standard sales development reps' time is spent on whether it's contact or account research and then determining who they're prioritizing to reach out to. So you're automatically saying you can give a sales development rep or a strategic account executive 30% of their time back just providing them all the information that's totally enriched for that 6QA, correct? Correct. Now, now, they still have to take the time to craft, right? So, and and I'll do, uh, three weeks ago, I was in our New York office, and I was helping them work 6QAs. And so I would look at the data and I would say, okay, I'm going to leave a, I'm going to leave a voicemail or I'm going to, I'm going to try to connect with someone, but mostly I left voicemails. Right. And I'm like, okay, what, what's the angle? What's the four factors? Okay. We've sold to an account just like this and they're highly successful, you know? Okay. This is a CMO. Well, we know like what the executive pillars are for the CMO. So we're, so I'm going to talk about that and we can see their top keywords. So I'm going to talk about that. So you got to take a minute to like get your talk track down. Right and then go. And then it's craft the email, leave the voicemails. So they still have to put their flair on it, right? But it's not just hunting and picking on the World Wide Web, which can be like, you can go through so many rat holes, you know? Totally agree. So, okay, we got to get this out right now. So a lot of people are talking about in the account-based marketing and sales nomenclature, marketing qualified accounts, and sales qualified accounts, and you talk about the six QA. Can you yeah. kind of define the, the three of them and what's the difference of a six QA? Yeah, sure. So basically, let's start with an MQL, a marketing qualified lead. In most people's world, this is a lead, which means it's a contact. So one contact, and it's tracking the activity of that one contact. And there has been some level of activity that would indicate or that that mark a marketing team has scored to mean that it should get passed to sales. Something should happen. Typically, that means they're a hand raiser, which means that they have filled out a form either for a piece of content or to get a demo. There is nothing wrong with hand raisers. I think if they're just filling out forms to get content, it's probably a very low quality hand raiser. But if, if someone comes to your website and wants a demo and they're in one of your ideal customer accounts, like, booyah, that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, that, that still applies. My challenge with that, though, is it's still a contact or one persona. And so in the account-based world, even if it is a hand raiser, I still believe the SLA should be to reach out to three personas, at least for us, because we want to make sure that we're working in account, even though one, only one person raised their hand. Here's why. 
Let's say we were flies on the wall of any sales forecast meeting around the world. At least one AE would rock up and talk about his or her deal. And the sales manager would say, well, how many people are you talking to? And that AE would say one. And that sales manager would get all fired up and freaked out and really annoyed because they know you're not going to get a deal done with a single threaded deal. It's called a single threaded deal. And so I think that when we just pass that one contact, we're literally teeing up single threaded deals for sales. And it's actually easier to multi-thread earlier. The farther along the deal goes, the harder it is for sales to multi-thread. So anyway, so that's kind of my issue with, with MQLs. Now, you asked about sales qualified leads and, and this and that. Let me make sure I also can, I, I didn't enunciate very well. I was really talking more about marketing qualified accounts, MQAs and sales qualified accounts, which I think somewhat aligned with six QAs, correct? Yes. So a six QA is essentially taking into account the account fit. Is this a good account for you? Are the people doing the research anonymous or known typically good people for you? Are they the right personas? It takes into account the type of behavior they're doing, recency and frequency. And it pulls that all together with your first party engagement. And it's what gives you that timeline to say they're early stage or they're in the sweet spot that sales should reach out. So the 6QA for us just means it's in the sweet spot of when we want sales to reach out. And it triggers that workflow that I just talked about. Gotcha. And then and you're continuously evaluating those opportunities that close and everything that led up to that. So your 6QA scoring algorithm may change over time based upon what's happening with your current full final conversion rate. Exactly. Exactly. But it just happens. I don't need to go and change it. It's just That's doing insane. it for me. It's like looking at the patterns and changing based on the patterns that it sees in our closed deals. So now we all have our traditional conversion rates, right? And we won't go through them all, but you know, the MQLs to SQLs or SQLs to SALs and opportunities. And you mentioned a whole lot of new metrics based upon this new way of thinking about acquiring and, and expanding customers. What are three or four of the new metrics that you think everyone should be aware of and consider how they can implement these in your account-based model? So I don't know if they're new. I think they're new to a marketing organization. So what I obsess over, I mean, obsess, are our win rates. And that's from qualified, from pipeline to close. I obsess over the cycle time from pipeline to close. And I obsess over the ASP from pipeline to close. I do that because I'm a shareholder, A. But B, a lot of marketers would say, but we get it to pipeline. And then it's not our problem, right? And, and so a lot of marketers look at cycle times and conversion rates going from you know 6QA to meeting book to meeting completed to qualify pipeline. I do all that too. But what I really worry more about are those other metrics. And here's why. I actually quota myself and the team on how much pipeline we have to create by when. 
And the quotas, it's not like a sales quota where it's like your quota is 800K and your quota is 1.2 million and it is what it is. Like ours change based on those dynamics, right? So if our ASPs drop, I'm going to have to create a lot more pipeline. If our win rates drop, more pipeline. And so I'm always watching those to make sure the assumptions that we made about those quotas are actually going to play out. And every quarter we relook at those to make our our quarterly like pipeline build plan and quotas. And and we drill in by go-to-market segment. This is really important because the strat segment is going to operate totally different than our velocity segment. So anyway, that's that's kind of our our process and every quarter you know, we, we go into all that. So I am very committed to keeping, you know, win rates healthy because it just means more, more work for me and the team. <laughs> With the level of insight you use to kind of determine what the pipeline need is, especially on a cohort by cohort basis, what happens when your in-market um, pipeline seems to be going down or it's not increasing as much as your revenue needs to? Do you have to pivot and do more on the kind of target and awareness side of the equation, Lutney? That's a great question. So what we do is we're always like proactively warming up new slivers of ICP. So it's more about saying like two years ago, our ideal customer profile was 14,000 accounts. It's now 34,000 accounts because what we've done is we've said, okay, we want to go unlock this vertical. And and so then we create that slice. We don't hire AEs yet. I start marketing to that vertical. I start testing messaging. I start being, you know, can I consistently create six QAs in this vertical? And then if we think that we can and we prove that we can, then we build the sales team along behind it. You know, same thing for EMEA. We warmed up EMEA for a year which would be an example of that. So it's always, so it's more like warming up new slices of ICP. And then for our strat segment, which is a lot smaller, obviously, that's kind of that more of a small TAM type scenario. Yeah, we do things at the target account level. I just am not going to send them a bottle of champagne, right? I'm going to be mindful of the odds you know, of, of marketing and, you know, to that segment and try to be smart about it. Yeah, I, I got to shine a, a bright, bright spotlight on what you just said, because it's the number one mistake I've seen marketing and sales teams make over the last three years is they want to accelerate their growth. They open the aperture of what their TAM is, and then they hire salespeople before they have the appropriate understanding of the awareness and consideration, i.e. warming up that new target segment. And that's led to really inflated customer acquisition costs, payback periods, and CAC ratios. Well, it sounds like in your model- The marketing isn't doing anything for me. It leads to a lot of grouchy salespeople. And so, I mean, I tell Mark, I'm like, don't you dare create a territory (laughs) unless I know I can beat them because they're going to have all these, they're these little baby birds. This is like music to not only my ears, but a lot of the CROs who listen to our show. And I can't believe we're coming up on 30 minutes already. So I'm going to do a quick pivot, Lotney, if that's okay. And that is the dark funnel. Now, about three and a half years ago, I started listening to this kind of, I'll say, 
early influencer named Chris Walker in Refined mm -hmm. Labs. He talks a lot about the dark funnel. And I must admit, a little bit of old school, it's like, what's this dark funnel thing? But you've even went and trademarked it. So who better to ask than what is the dark funnel and how can the modern CMO take advantage and then show the ROI of understanding that dark funnel? Yeah, so it's interesting. So Kyle Christensen actually originally created the term dark funnel. He's a brilliant product marketer and had a had a preemie was was at at six cents. And I just think it perfectly describes how it feels selling without great data and particularly great intent data because it's literally like shooting darts in the dark. And I think that we sometimes try to manufacture a known funnel with arbitrary scoring because everyone wants a funnel. It like feels neat and feels, you know, like manageable, but we know it's nonsense. And so it's almost impossible to be able to operate without starting to really understand the anonymous behavior that's happening in the dark funnel. Now, will you ever know every single thing? No, but I'd rather know 80% more than nothing, you know? And so that's what's critical about it. I mean, we did some research and only 3% of website visitors fill out a form. I don't care if you gate or don't gate, 3% fill out a form. And so you can be in this game trying to get that to 3.2%. Or you can deal with the other 97%. <laughs> and that's what I'm saying. And I mean, a lot of marketers couldn't even tell you who's on their website. Do you know how much money I spend on my website? The content, the maintenance, advertising to get people to it, and then to not know. And that's just first party intent that a lot of people don't understand. So I think it's like irresponsible, honestly, at this stage in the game to not be able to to have these insights. You're just, it's a losing proposition. You mentioned research. Let me just, we did this research just with the lean data a couple months ago. We were shocked. Only 32% of B2B tech firms actually knew the source of their web visitors. Only 32%. And then to look at the conversion rate to a qualified lead, only about 18% could tell you, even in the old school of web traffic source, to a marketing qualified lead. It's like, how in the heck are you ever going to, to be able to target your marketing dollars if you don't even know where current traffic is coming from, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Incredible. So it's about dissecting and I don't love attribution because it over rotates on the conversion point, but I still, I don't share it, but I use it if that makes sense. Like, like we look at conversion points because we want to know like what were the highest converting things, you know, what drove someone to finally want to meet with us, want to engage. And so it's a fine way to make decisions within that narrow slice. But to your point, to be honest, I don't even look at form fill, like traffic to form, like form fill. I just want to know what got us the traffic. So for us, my top of funnel boom stat is ideal customer profile web traffic. If I have to double next year, I need to be getting double the number of ideal customers to our website. Can I ask you, know, you is it ICP? Like, is it IICP? Which do you measure? We measure ICP, right? Because we're trying to get 
you know, that that makes them right. So and I'm just trying to get as many of our ideal customer profiles. It's like Target getting someone to the store. I want to get people to the store that have money to spend. <laughs> you know, would Target not measure how many people show up at their Lake and Waukegan location? Of course they wouldn't. I mean, that's stupid, right? So that's my highest level. Then we look at conversion points because what got them there may or may not be what they convert on. That could be different. So a lot of people debate this attribution, first touch, last touch, multi-touch. You're yeah. saying, I don't fixate on it, but I do like to know what the combination of touches are that lead to the ultimate conversion to new customers. Is that kind of what I heard? Yeah. And actually what we do is every quarter I take all the deals that we've won and we analyze their journey. And I do that by segment. And that actually is the most illuminating thing I find because it shows me, you know, oh, this segment loves analyst content. You know, I mean, analyst stuff is really expensive, but I guess we got to fork over the moolah because if you want to have enterprise and strat customers, like that's the stuff they love. You know, I can tell you our mid-market customers love how-to guides. I can tell you our velocity want to know how to get started. And so I like dissect all of that to see, yes, where did they come from? Did they attend a webinar or did they go to the customer community circle? Like, But it helps me know what are the losers that aren't showing up anywhere and what are the keepers that we spend more money on? So that's kind of our process. And, and I will say attribution in the event realm, if you think about an event, they're very expensive. And so, yeah, I, I, we have to have an, a 10 times ROI on an event and that sourced and, and influenced pipeline. We look at both those ROIs versus how much it cost us. Easy. Okay, our last pivot, we're going to let our listening audience get to know you a little bit more on a personal basis through three rapid fire questions. Okay. First, is there a company or thought leader that you think is a must follow out there for fellow B2B CMO CROs? So, yeah, I thought this question was interesting. I tend to follow the, the investors. So I think Insight puts out a lot of great research because they, they can see patterns, right? Like when you're just following an individual company, they're only looking at their own data. And so I love that a lot of times the investors, you know, they're looking at hundreds of portfolio companies that are similar to me. So I follow that. There's a guy named Tomas Tungsten, who's also an investor. And he just puts out a lot of good research on the overall like publicly traded companies. The, he just did a great study on PLG companies actually have lower profit margins, which is kind of, you know, no one, no one talks about that. And, and he dissected that and why. So, you know, those are the, I guess, the kind of things that I, I like to nerd out That's on. That's a good one. Tomas, who, who was for many, many years at Redpoint, is going to be announcing his newest adventure in the next month. It seems like he may be going down the entrepreneur journey like a lot of his fellow um, portfolio company CEO. So that'll be interesting to watch. Well, he is smart as a whoop. I think he always nails it. He does. Okay, second, what tool or technology should every B2B SaaS company be using but not your own? I'm trying to think of like an offbeat one that no one would know. You know what I mean? So we use this tool. The name is the worst name ever. It's called Jiffle Now. Such a bad Jiffle name. Now. Yes. But I've used them at two companies now. <laughs> and if you are going to be spending on 
conference or you know in-person programs, what they allow you to do is book all of your meetings in advance and make sure that you have a SME attached to the meeting and it automatically shows up in Salesforce and then it automatically helps you run the follow-ups. So to me, a show, a lot of times marketers focus on what happens during the show. You know, did we have a tequila tasting or a drawing or whatever? And all that's cool. I actually love that stuff. I think it's really important. But the pre and the post are your money. That's where you make the money. And so I feel like a lot of times you're so exhausted after planning all of the the parties and the meetings and the this and the that that you sometimes lag on there. And salespeople are notoriously terrible for the pre-work they need to do as well as the follow-up. And so this allows us to take control of that process and make sure we get value out of our programs. Once you get to that 10X return you're looking for for events, that's great. Okay, last question. Um, A lot of people out there want to be the next great B2B CMO or ultimately CEO. What advice do you give to that early career person who maybe took their first marketing job right out of undergrad that wants to be you in 15, 20 years? So I think that, a great on-ramp into technology, sales and or marketing is being a BDR. So I think if they're really, really early, I would recommend that. I think that if they're mid in their career, I always challenge them to try to find a place where they can really make a mark and get multiple roles. Because in marketing, it's very diverse. Right. And so like I have someone who came with me from a period to six cents and she was a field marketer and now she's in product marketing. Now, no one would have hired her from field marketing to do product marketing, but I did because she knows six cents. She's earned the right. And so you need to kind of get somewhere that you have earned the right that and have a leader that's willing to move you around because it's a really broad skill base that you have to have. That's great advice. And for our listeners who want to follow you beyond going out and buying one of my favorite books of the year, No Forums, No Spam, No Cold Calls, how can we follow you, Lonnie? Oh, LinkedIn, connect. Always love connecting on LinkedIn. Well, thank you so much for being a guest on the Metrics Major Up podcast. To our listening audience, if you're enjoying guests like Lotney Conant and talking about the dark funnel, it would mean the world to us to go ahead and subscribe to our podcast, your favorite podcast app, go ahead and give us that five-star rating. Lonnie, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Ray. Thank you for listening to today's Metrics to Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit revopsquared.com.